at an early age, I, I learnt that, you know, businesses could be great things and um, businesses could all but also be successful and last and you could do the right thing um, and look after people in business and still make good money. So that was a really good thing that I, you know, didn't realise the significance of until much later in life. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Ben Everingham from Pumped on Property. After a post-uni gap year overseas, he purchased his first property in Sydney and was bitten by the property investing bug. Also, here's a story that sounds like a major blockbuster movie. Now, if you don't have landlord's insurance, you may want to rethink that after this. Starting off, we find out that Everingham turns over some serious money with his businesses. One of those businesses is Pumped On Property. Uh, We're a buyer's agency that buy between 50 and $70 million worth of property per year in Australia. And I also own a property management business uh, which manage our clients' properties after we've bought them for them. Our philosophy with our business is very simple. We only take on 10 new clients per month and, um, you know, we can get into the philosophy of of what I like to buy personally later on in the podcast. But um, yeah, it's been a a great little business and obviously, um, you know, a whirlwind in terms of the growth over the last couple of years as well. He gives a rundown of his typical work week which varies day to day. My day-to-day is extremely um, regimented, I suppose, because I'm a father and live on the Sunshine Coast with my wife. I've got two little girls up here. So um, my thought process is, you know, the time that I trade away from those girls needs to be put to its absolute best use. So, um, you know, on a given day, at the start of my week, I obviously plan my week and the things that I'm looking to achieve over that period of the week. Um, Monday is generally catching up with the team and um, setting up for the week, reviewing the previous week. Um, And then the marketing side of my business, which I love, like the shooting the videos and the podcasts and the cool stuff like that. Um, A Tuesday would be catching up with clients um, in what we call our strategy sessions where we we talk with people for an hour and find out where they are and where they're looking to go. And so I might do those conversations back to back from, you know, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then a Wednesday is working with existing clients and the team and reviewing the properties that we're looking at that week. Um, a Thursday is a little bit the same, working with clients. And then a Friday is kind of the, um, you know, get into everything that's left over from the week and finish off all of those things that I haven't had time to do type thing. So, you know, a general day is the same way that everyone starts planning the day, getting the emails, and then I focus on, you know, one or two priorities or tasks. Um, per day, those those big rock type things just so that I can knock them over. He shares the top five most important things to him as an investor and what type of investor he sees himself as. Very, very conservative. I suppose probably one of the most conservative people in the Australian property market that's actually still buying property. Um, you know, there's, there's five things that are very important to me as an investor that serve as the foundation of what I think every successful portfolio needs and the number one thing is timing the market. And the example I'd give would be anyone that's bought in Sydney or Melbourne in the last five years now knows the, the power of timing the right market at the right time and riding that capital gain wave up at the right time of the cycle. Um, 
The second most important thing to me outside of timing is obviously consistent long-term capital growth, um, which means, you know, targeting major metro markets from my perspective. Um, the, the next thing that's very important to me is buying a property that you can add value to over time so that if the market stops performing or goes backwards, um, you've got a way to continue to, to build your portfolio, which might mean subdivisions, duplexes, renovations, etc. Um, and then the, the fourth thing that's very important to me now, especially as I become more mature as an investor, is above average rental returns or good cash flow. Um, and, you know, with the recent changes in lending, um, this 2017 during the time of recording this podcast, it's becoming increasingly difficult for certain investors in the market to borrow money. So it's important to have a strong cash flow position. And then, you know, I like a lot of the people that listen to this podcast earn money and pay tax on that money. So, um, you know, I do like to have some form of taxable benefit with the properties that I buy as well. Um, but, you know, that's a very distant fifth. Turning back to his beginnings, Everingham details where he grew up and how his childhood taught him that business was the way to go. Um, I grew up on the southern side of Sydney, so in an area or a suburb called Engadine, which is about 20 minutes inland from Cronulla Beach. I met a um, girl, like most stories start and end, <laughs> um, and she was a Queensland girl. Um, she's far too attractive for someone like me to ever be able to actually stay with long term but for whatever reason she decided to and so um, when we moved to Sydney um, after I finished university I was in the IBM's global graduate program and we went down to Sydney and gave that a little crack for a while and then she said um, that she wanted to move back to Queensland for the lifestyle and I said "Um, I'm not letting this one go and I came back across the border with her and that was kind of you know what happened, we've been back up here now for um, six years, that thing, or five years, so it's been quite a while. I went to a school, um, a Catholic school in Engadine called Bosco. I went to Bosco Primary and Bosco High School. Um, there, I, I grew up playing a lot of sport, surfing and doing a lot of competitive sports, so Bosco was a good fit from that perspective because there was, you know, sport was a big part of the curriculum there and it was very competitive school, like one of the best competitive sports schools in the state Um, and also you know lots of the kids there used to get on the train and we'd go surfing at the beaches after school and on the weekends and skateboard and stuff like that so that was kind of our school and then um, you know my parents my mum grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney um, and my dad grew up in um, the western suburbs out near sort of Canterbury and Bankstown which is why I'm still a Bulldogs fan Um, and a lot of my mates always gave me a hard time about that but you know, that's kind of their journey and, you know, dad started with absolutely nothing. Um, one of eight children lost his dad when he was four years of age. So, um, you know, he kind of was a self-made guy and um, had worked really hard his entire life to create a better life for us. And um, maybe at, I don't know, 45 years of age, he started his own business um, or bought an established business and continued to run it. And so, you know, at an early age, I, I learned that, you know, businesses could be great things and um, businesses could all but also be successful and last and you could do the right thing um, and look after people in business and still make good money. So that was a really good thing that I, you know, didn't realise the significance of until much later in life when I had, you know, the confidence at a very early age to step out on my own and go and do my own thing. With his father being one of eight children, 
I imagine Everingham's family reunions must take place on a full-size football field. We do like a big um, Everingham get-together every couple of years and, you know, there's, we laugh about it like there's literally, you know, like over 100 um, uncles, aunties and cousins start thing and now there's the next generation coming through. Those, so there's probably more like 150. It's crazy, you know, what one woman's legacy could be over a 90-year period of time. We know he wanted to get into business. But we don't know where property investing came into it. Did his parents invest in property when he was younger? They actually didn't. They bought their own home. So my mum's owned three, uh, four properties over her entire lifetime, but never more than one at a time. It's always been her own home in Sydney or recently she moved up to the coast. Um, and my dad, um, same sort of thing. He's owned three properties over his entire life and all three of those properties have actually been the house that he grew in. So... Property investing wasn't something, but I remember going on a, you know, like a family holiday when I was in primary school, and I remember my parents seeing this house right on the beach for ninety thousand dollars at the time. It was, you know, twenty years ago, and I remember hearing them talk as I grew up about that house that they missed out on and what their life would have been like if they had bought it. So very early, I understood like that property prices, I suppose, can go up over time, and these. Um, you know, I didn't want to be the person that missed out on these opportunities and was talking about, you know, you know, spending a lifetime worrying about money or thinking about that sort of stuff. He's sixth to property now, but back in the day, Everingham was a jack of all trades and one who knew his value. This is a story. My mates give me a really hard time about this, but I think over from the time I got my first job when I was like um, 12 years of age. Um, and I think I, from that time until now, I've, I've literally had over 50 different jobs. Um, yeah, like I've, I've worked in, yeah, like I've worked with some of the biggest companies in the world from like your IBMs and your GJ Gardner Homes and your American Expresses and your Qantases, um, right through to like, you know, local corner stores. And um, I did like landscaping and labouring for four years when I was at uni and worked in cafes and bars and, you know, absolutely everything you can kind of imagine. I was kind of that person that one, valued myself from a young age. And so I just wouldn't put up with shit like in terms of, um, you know, getting treated the way that I didn't think I was supposed to be treated, even as a young guy. Um, And secondly, like I was a bit like the kid in the candy store with um, learning. And so I used to go into positions and jobs and learn as much as possible. But then my learning curve, you know, I, I identified either very quickly. I didn't want to be in that space after three, six, 12 months. Um, I think the longest job I actually ever had before starting the business was about a three-year period, which is kind of crazy now that I look back at it. But I didn't realize how invaluable all of those experiences observing different types of leaders and different types of businesses would now be. I've met some incredible people, you know, one of the guys that I think about often is the, the my last boss at my my last job, which was, um, you know, as a marketing manager for six different global brands and um, three of those brands were in the building game in Australia, America and New Zealand and I just observed a very young guy at the time when I started with him, I think he was 34, um, you know, making very good money and um you know not really working a lot i think in the last 12 months that i worked with him he probably came into the office 20 20 days out of 12 months he just had created this very scalable very sustainable business model and 
working with those types of people and observing those things at a young age is extremely powerful because it changes your paradigm and it changes the way that you think about everything um, from seeing someone else that's already gone out there and done it. He tells the story of a typical pool party he went to during his uni days that ended up determining his future career. Remember, I picked up Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was 23 years of age and, you know, I think everyone, you know, that doesn't come from money, that book has a pretty significant effect on when they read it, if they read it young enough. Um, and so that I picked up Rich Dad Poor Dad and when I was 23, I had a year and a half or t- a year and a half, I think, left of university. And I remember going to my now wife at the time, girlfriend's friend's house and they were having like a party and everyone was getting heaps drunk and I just, I picked up the book the day before and I literally couldn't put it down. So I took it to this party and just sat on the pool chair all day reading it in the sun while everyone else got smashed around me. Um, and I felt like an arsehole looking back about it now, but at the time it was just so captivating. I couldn't put this thing down. And what I learned from that book, even though I didn't have money to go out and buy property at the time because I was still at university living out of home, um, was that assets are definitely better than wages. And so I learned the power of investing and compound interest over time. And I also learned that um, running your own business is better than working for someone else. And so from that time I read that book, I, I knew that I would at some point in my future invest in property and then I'd use that property and that passive income to go in and start my own businesses without the fear of doing that. Um, so the first year I got out of university, I saved a bunch of money. Um, a friend of mine, it was the first time I'd really had money in my life and a friend of mine came up for a holiday and he said, do you want to go to America next week? And I said, yes. So I actually went and spent my whole first deposit on a trip to America with some friends. Um, came back, got a big slap over the knuckles from my um, you know, wife's father, who was a very avid property investor and just sort of said, what the F have you done? You've wasted your first deposit. You're an idiot. Um, it took me another six months to save another deposit. And then I went and bought my first place, which was a two-bedroom unit in the Southland Shire in Sydney, Miranda. And then um, three or four months after that, I went and bought a second property, which was a five-bedroom house with a granny flat on the central coast. So um, from that time on, I was hooked. And, um, you know, that was sort of seven, seven and a half, eight years ago now. So, you know, over that time, we've accumulated and sold and bought and held and built a lot of different properties and, you know, that's kind of where we are today. He shares what his property portfolio has been able to give him and his family. Enough to make me comfortable, that's for sure. I'm not one of the guys in the industry that's trying to, you know, buy 4,000 properties and, you know, do that sort of thing and it's all about ego and sacrifice. I'm just looking for a great lifestyle with myself and my family, which I've been able to create and, um, you know, it's not about how much more, it's about how much better quality of life I can now have. Buckle up because we're in for a wild ride with this investment horror story. Are you ready for this story, man? I don't know if your audience is ready for this because this is probably like the most, you could write a Hollywood movie about something that recently happened. <laughs> this happened actually recently, like I've currently got two insurance claims in on a property. Um, so it's a Friday afternoon at four o'clock three weeks ago and I get a call from my um, mate who said, have you turned on the local news? Um, and I said, I said, what local news firstly because I live in Queensland. And he said, uh, I think your property is on the local news on the Central Coast. Um, 
And I said, what? And then he said, yeah, you should probably ring your property manager. And then he hung up the phone. And I, I'm i like, okay, what's going on? I ring my property manager and I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, well, um, you know, because I'd, I'd recently found out that I had, you know, I'd, I'd leased the property out to one lady who'd been there for eight years, but I'd, I'd found out in the latest inspection that she'd subleased it out to eight other adults. Um so it was a house with a granny flat. Um, you know, eight adults living in one property is just deadly, as you know, um, especially the quality of the tenants that we had in there. Um, and so I've kind of gone, what happened? And she's like, well, there was a domestic um, domestic issue at the property the other night. And she said, and I said, what happened? And she's like, well, two of the male in the property had a knife fight. And I said, okay, um, that's insane, like what the hell, who has a knife fight? Um, and she said, they've done a fair bit of damage to the property. Um, and so the next, a couple of days later, some six detectives have rocked up to the property because, you know, they've, they've realised that something else is going on. Um, and these people have effectively run out the back of the property and I don't know what's happened, but at the exact moment, the detectives have rocked up my granny flat, which has been there for eight years, has caught on fire and burnt to the ground. Um, so the cause of the fire was undetermined from the police event and the fire event. Um, I don't know what happened, but it's pretty coincidental <laughs> that something's obviously happened. Um, and so the detectives couldn't enter the property until the fire was out. So two fire trucks had rocked up into this little suburban street by the beach on the central coast. Um, and then you know, the six detectives are there and then they've called for backup and as they've called for backup and sectioned off this street, these eight adults have run out of the property. Apparently four of them have got away and four of them have been put in cuffs. Um, and so, sorry, this, I hope this is okay to share this story. Like it's pretty, it's the most extreme example of what could ever happen to a property, I think. This is the start, bro. Like this just escalates over a period of weeks. Um, so these people, four of, the, four of them are in cuffs and about to be put in the cop car. Then a couple of the neighbours come out that have AVOs against these people in the house um, and they start breaking off fence palings and getting cricket bats and then attacking these people that have their arms cuffed behind them. So there's now 30 or 40 members of the public in a full-blown fight in the street um, because for whatever reasons that I didn't know and my property manager never told me about, there's a massive issue in the street with these tenants. Um and so there's like now 30 or 40 policemen at the property and 30, 40 people literally fighting them. And, you know, you think the story's going to end there and, you know, these people go away. Then the tenants get back into the property. We've gone to tribunal and obviously using the police event letter allowed them, you know, allowed the, the courts have granted that they've got 10 days to get out of the property and remove all their stuff. Over that 10-day period... There were two more knife fights um, and the tenants during those fights broke every single window in the property and put their heads and arms um, through about every single wall in the house. So the entire house is now destroyed internally as well. Um, and so we've had, that's where the second insurance claim comes on top of the first one. Um, and then, you know, they've left, they've vacated the property, but before they have, it's Easter long weekend and the electricity company's cut the power off. So then, the person in my property has got an extension cord, illegally plugged it into the neighbour's house and is running their entire house off this one cord and it's raining 
the cord catches fire and has to be put out again. <laughs> like it just keeps going and going, man. Um, and then they've finally got them out of the property. They haven't cleaned anything, and not only that, they've actually dumped four stolen cars onto the property um, before they left. <laughs> so this is this is all literally occurred in the last three weeks, man. And this has been my life just trying to go through this thing. Like I don't know many people that have had an entire house trashed you know what looks like some form of illegal activity occurring in the house their granny flat burnt down three knife fights and four illegal cars dumped in one in one sitting but you know that's kind of the worst case scenario that's the worst thing that's ever happened to me and if i didn't laugh about it i'd have to cry it's funny because the properties you know increased um in five year period it's like um doubled almost tripled in value so it's been an incredible investment we just you know, lucked out with the wrong tenants at the wrong time. I'm exhausted after just hearing about it. After all of that, Everyham lets us in on what his plans are once he's on the other side of the drama. To be honest with you, I'm getting the insurance money, renovating and selling the property. Um, but not. I was planning on doing that anyway. Like, you know, that was going to be the plan at some point in the next two years because I, I can, I can, the property's, you know, now worth 500K. I can't see it being worth a million dollars in this suburb in another five or ten years' time. So, um, you know, I have a rule that when the the money is being made, I don't have a problem um, exiting a property and reinvesting into a higher-performing market. I don't believe that property should be something that you hold on for the rest of your life. I think, you know, strategically entering and exiting markets at appropriate times can be in a very effective strategy to move forward faster as well. Yeah, geez. Um when when you say insured, it, it's it's a hundred percent insured, or is there is there certain things that you insurance is fundamental, man. Like if you're not covered for everything, then you're, you're absolutely gambling. That's definitely the takeaway from that story. Switching to a more positive note, he dives into his ride on the property wave and when it all clicked for him. I suppose the aha moment would have actually been when I bought that second investment property. Um, you know, and realised the number of things. One, you know, I'd now, none of my friends at the time and not many people where I grew up had investment properties. So the fact that I was 24 and had a couple of properties was a, a, a big deal in my own mind. It was kind of like a pat on the back and a feeling of worth or something like that, if you know what I mean. Like it, it gave me some self-gratification. Um, what I also learned from buying that second property is that you can buy well below market value if you know the pain points for other people and um you know so that that was huge for me the the biggest thing that i've probably learned in the last seven years um and has been everything that i've been focusing on lately is just is just timing um you know the power of buying those initial properties in the right markets at the right time you know directly after the gfc or during the gfc you know what would have been very close to the bottom of the market and then, you know, riding that wave back up kind of made me realise that most of the hard work in property is actually done over a very short period of time and then a lot of it's just sitting back and um, continuing to consolidate and get yourself into a better position, like a safer position. So that would be huge for me. Like I just actually finished this incredible book by Philip Anderson. He's an economist in Australia who's got businesses in America and London and um, for anyone that's seen that movie, The Big Short, he was one of those guys that identified the housing crash in 2005 in America and shorted the American market all the way down. Um, 
and he wrote this book called The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking, which looks at the last 300 years of boom and bust cycles in America and Australian property. Um, and it's just the most powerful book I've ever read in terms of understanding the bigger picture and the, you know, the timing of different markets, you know, and, and what was interesting to me was there was a very consistent pattern of, you know, 14 years of relatively stable upward growth and four years of very hard times. So it was extremely interesting to see, you know, over such a long period of pattern repeating itself based on a centralized banking system that constantly breaks at some point um, based on a certain amount of pressure in the market. So that's big for me to kind of be able to, you know, see a little bit more of the future than I've been able to see before as well as, you know, a good review of the past. He divulges on his penciled in plan for the next 30 years. It took me a really long time to understand what my personal investment strategy was and I've tried a lot of different things and, you know, luckily with the timing of the market, most of those things have come off in a positive way but, you know, what I've now realized for me and what I'm most excited about moving forward is the fact that you know, I know that Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane are going to be my playgrounds for buying property over the next 30 years. I know that I'm going to be buying walking distance to the beaches or, um, you know, within 10 kilometres of the CBD. I know that I'm always going to be able to find those distressed assets and then add value to them over a very short period of time to release immediate equity. Um, you know, I understand that capital growth is affected by a few things and far less things than most people think about. Um, and higher quality properties is actually what gets you there in, um, you know, a shorter period of time as opposed to, um, you know, stuffing around with all sorts of different things that people stuff around or, you know, create businesses out of just because they see a niche in the marketplace, not because it's the most effective thing for people. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited that I've got a plan in place and that I'm at a stage of life where I know what I now know and, and can just consistently apply that for the next 30 years. Coming back, Everingham reveals his long-term objective and his advice on how to avoid listening to the naysayers. I think um, an investor lives and dies by um, the, like the internal belief systems and values in their mind. So, I've had to overcome the same things that I think every investor has to overcome. You know, that's a fear of failure and then after you get over that fear of failure, like a fear of success and actually, oh shit, I've achieved what I wanted to achieve, now what? And that actually took me a long time to come to terms with that, you know, things were getting better in my life and, um, you know, redefining myself once I'd, I'd, I'd achieved all those goals that I set out to achieve when I was younger. Um, you know, like the same things that plague every investor, the information overload and um, the different types of strategies and different opinions and all of the noise in the industry um, and, you know, taking the different pieces of each of those strategies and actually defining something for myself that, was in line with my personal risk profile and thoughts on investing. So, you know, I've had to overcome those things and then at different times not having the right mentors or coaches around me, you know, feeling isolated and a, a pretty lonely to be honest with you because I didn't have a lot of people to connect with um, that were at the same, you know, stage of life in terms of their investment journey. So I think they're things that almost every investor comes through and I wouldn't say I've overcome everything, you know, there's still so many times that I wake up going, holy hell, I'm in like a fair bit of debt right now. Or, um, you know, is the whole world going to fall on its head today when you see a couple of bad articles? But then 
you know, to get past that stuff, I just remember that my long-term objective isn't about year-on-year returns. It's about consistency over time and there will be good times and there will be bad times um, and to just not buy into the hype that's happening around me based on, you know, only two things, sell papers and that's boom or bust. And so if one's not selling it, the other one is. And it's, it's easy to get caught up on that stuff if you don't have a consistent long-term vision and plan for yourself. He lets us in on how he gets his mentoring advice. I've done a lot of the things that a lot of other people in the industry initially turned to. Like I went to what I thought were awesome educational nights and turned out to be property marketers and spruikers and financial planners that weren't financially independent just flogging me crap. Um, you know, I've gone to the nights where the accounts and the solicitors get involved and they're also trying to plug you rubbish that you don't need. Um, I've gone to a lot of the seminars and the big events. You know, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, a lot of the people that you've had on your show and that everybody um, knows in the industry. Um, and I've listened to their DVD programs and I listen to their podcasts. Um, I've also read a lot of the books. Like, you know, about three years ago, what I did was I looked at every one of the top wealthy or the wealthiest hundred property investors of all time and the hundred wealthiest, um, you know, traders, I suppose, if you want to call it, whether that's in bonds, commodities or stocks. And then I looked at every single one of those hundred wealthiest people um, and I bought a book. If any one of those people had read a book, I bought it. So I ended up buying about 65 books and just reading those over the last three-year period. Um you know, because I'm like, if you're going to be the best, you've got to model the best of the best. Um, so, you know, I suppose I didn't really have direct people in my life until my previous job. Um, but, yeah, those those books, podcasts and all of those sorts of things were, were a big helping hand for a long period of time in my journey. While we've got books on the brain, Ibrahim lists off some of his favorites. Obviously, I mentioned in the previous episode as well, like I really enjoyed Rich Dad, Poor Dad for the people that are just getting started. Um, I actually just finished Tony Robbins' new book, um, Un- Unbreakable, which is a condensed version of the book that he wrote last year about money mastery. And I actually found it to be one of the, the better financial books that I've read, you know, for an easy, for a person to digest. So I just finished that one, um, on the, on the way down and back on the weekend to Melbourne for a mate's wedding. Um, what else have I really liked? I, you know, from a property investment perspective, there's probably not a hell of a lot of others that have had a huge impact on me. A lot of the share trading and investing books have because I think those guys are a lot smarter and a lot more sophisticated than the average Australian property investor or spruker. Um, you know, I, I kind of like um, a, a couple of books that are a bit outside the genre, like, for example, The Richest Man in Babylon and, and The Alchemist. Um and, and those types of things as well, like a lot of that more motivational or mindset-related stuff. We've heard the advice he's taken, but he has some advice and wisdom of his own to pass on. Um, I think the best advice as I've gotten older is Warren Buffett's, which is be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. Everything that I've been reading in the last couple of years has been related to markets and patterns over time globally. And, and the effect that it has on the local marketplace. So, um, you know, my strategy has changed dramatically from just buying whenever I had enough money to buy to buying very strategically at certain times in the market. And I know I've only been investing for seven years, so I haven't been through even half of a full cycle yet. But, um, 
you know, that's that's been very important to me, which is the reason why, as a buyer's agent, I stopped buying in Sydney for our clients a couple of years ago and transferred our focus to the Brisbane marketplace, which is just starting to get some great results now. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, unfortunately, you know, with only 1% of Australians um, owning more than five investment properties, there's not a lot of people that you can actually turn to that have, that have been there and done it. There's pe- plenty of people that talk crap about doing it, but there's not many people that have really achieved financial independence through property investing. And a lot of the people that are currently in the industry, you know, haven't really done anything since the 80s or the 90s, which was when, you know, properties doubled every seven years. So you didn't really have to do anything back then. You could just sort of buy and then hold and, and you'd be a millionaire where today, you know, returns aren't guaranteed. It's a lot more competitive and, um, you know, markets just don't do the consistent things that they used to do. So you've got to be more sophisticated in terms of your strategy to get the same results. He shares how he predicts when and where to invest in his personal portfolio and which cities he's focused on. In the good old days of investing in anything, you know, the the, the common or the mindset was that property prices double every seven years. You know, worst case scenario, they double every 10 years and I just don't think that's true anymore. Like Sydney and Melbourne have gone through a great wave of growth. Most suburbs growing between 40 and 80% in the last five years. Um, but, you know... The story that people aren't telling is the 10 years of completely flat property values that Sydney had before that. So I just don't think those old things ring true anymore. Like when I'm forecasting personally for my own portfolio, I do my assumptions that Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane will only do 4% capital growth per annum for the next 20 years. Like wages haven't increased in line with property values. And so um, I know it's an international marketplace now, particularly Sydney and Melbourne, which means local incomes don't matter as much. but you know, when the correction does come, there's going to be a lot of people that are significantly overexposed from, you know, my perspective and that, you know, that's from talking to eight or 900 investors every single year and intimately understanding their situation. Moving back to strategy, Everingham details the steps he took to achieve and build his portfolio. When I first started buying property, I wish I could say there was a strategy behind it. <laughs> um but the reality was I knew I wanted to buy property. I didn't know, you know, I was in that stage where I didn't know what I didn't know as an investor and that's a very dangerous stage. One, you make decisions, you know, based on third-party advice that might not be in your best interest. For example, at that time in my life, if the mortgage broker was prepared to get me the money, I was prepared to spend it was my, my attitude and mentality. What I was very lucky to time was that the years that I finished university was the middle slash end of the GFC and the market was tough for certain people and you know people were still scared and not buying stuff but because I hadn't been through a cycle you know I went on a buying rampage and effectively every time I had a five percent deposit when I bought another property in you know Sydney or the central coast or Brisbane and so you know at that time I didn't really have a strategy I knew that high-quality property in good areas close to the beach or close to the city was what I wanted, but that was about as far as it went. Um, you know, my my scope for identifying suburbs at the time was pretty much limited to buying a Residex report, doing a couple of – having a look at a couple of numbers, talking to a couple of local agents, looking on realestate.com and then buying something. It was very, very basic. Um, but, you know, that these days it's changed dramatically. Now there is a clearer vision and strategy. 
What criteria has he changed to select properties for his portfolio? I was looking for suburbs that had a predicted average annual price growth for the next eight years in a residential support of over 6% per annum. And then at that time, I was looking for a rental vacancy rate in the suburb below 2% because I knew that represented an undersupply of property for rent. Um, And then at the time, what I thought represented value, which has changed dramatically now, was the cheapest property in the worst condition in a good suburb. So I, I thought that value shopping meant buying cheap and buying something that no one else wanted to touch. But I now realise that, you know, buying cheap can sometimes mean that you lose, you know, one, potentially even 2% capital growth per annum over a longer term period of time. So that was my strategy, just, you know, buy the really ugly duckling, buy them off people that were just in a distressed state like divorces, um, you know, very ugly properties or deceased estates and um, to be pretty aggressive with, um, you know, trying to buy something that I thought was below market value, which in real terms, the agents would have been laughing seeing me coming because, you know, market value is whatever someone's prepared to pay. And I didn't have access to the sales history data at that time. So I actually had no idea what market value was. I thought it was what was on realestate.com. Hindsight is a funny thing. If he could go back, what would he do differently? Looking back at it now, it's easy with retrospect to know that I just would have bought a bunch more property on the beaches of Sydney. Um, I would have bought a couple of unrenovated units at Cronulla Beach. I probably would have been able to afford um, a property in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and I probably would have bought a couple of houses in the inner west. Like looking back now, with the income that I was earning and the way that the banks were giving out money at that time, um, I just would have focused more on the Sydney marketplace and bought much, much higher quality product with potential to add value to that product in much more premium suburbs. And, um, you know, I probably would have just held that property through to about the end of last year and then started cashing out of it. Everyham believes the average investor loses a large amount of money in capital gains by making these mistakes. I think most investors just make decisions that they don't understand will cost them. You know, I think the average investor, by making the decision that they make on the average property, probably costs themselves between 100 and 150 grand in capital gains over 12, over 10 years. Sorry, um, I just think people make big mistakes that they could avoid by, you know, listening to people like yourself. Um, and the people that you bring onto your shows or or doing better research. Like they spend so much time looking at the fluffy stuff and not enough time looking at the hard, how to identify the right properties, how to identify the right market, how to identify timing, you know, those more sophisticated things that everybody that has had to stretch further eventually learns, either through the market smashing them or helping them or through, you know, getting into this stuff very seriously and only wanting to make, you know, solid returns which beat the index funds in the stock market which is about 8% per annum over the last 50 years. So if you're not if you're not beating index funds in the stock market, like why are you investing in property when you can just go put it in there and just, you know, make your life simple? What's his personal habit that contributes towards his property investment success? OCD. <laughs> Um, like I'm sure there's people sitting on this podcast going, shit, this guy's anal, man. Like, um, but I am like, I'm obsessive about property. Like I can't help it. It's my passion. It's my purpose for being here. Um, it's what I love to do. It's what I would talk about all day. If, you know, 
I haven't. I don't talk about it outside of work. Luckily, in work, I get to talk about it most of the day. Um, that kind of gives me my fix. But I'm OCD. Like I'm constantly learning. I'm not one of those investors. It's like, oh, capital growth works. So now I'll just do capital growth for the rest of my life until it doesn't work. You know, I'm not a high risk taker, which means I, you know, avoid the development stuff that a lot of other people decide to take on and. There's so many examples of people over the last five years that have done five developments where if they had just bought one property in Sydney, they'd be in a better overall position right now. Um, So I think the fact that I'm detailed, orientated, I'm very patient now um, and that I have a very structured way of buying from identifying markets to identifying suburbs to reviewing suburbs to identifying quality properties to reviewing those properties, it just makes the process simple and automatic. Um, you know, I can qualify out a suburb in about two minutes, which, you know, people could spend two months looking at before they actually decide to walk away. So, you know, the simple processes that I've set up because I'm so over the top with this stuff and I want to do the right thing by myself and the people that we help has enabled us to just, you know, systemize it down to a point where, you know, it's hard for us to miss something now. It's, it's very difficult for me to buy the wrong type of property for myself. Um, outside of obviously the whole global market, you know, crashing and burning, which is probably going to happen two or three times during my investment journey. And I just, I've had to come to terms with that. Another mistake he sees investors making is one he made himself in the past. And number one reason why I see most investors failing, and that is something that I've done personally. So that's the only reason I can say this. It's not to have a dig at anyone but myself in the past. It's literally people get bored and people want to tinker and people want to overcomplicate very simple things and people, you know, once you've bought a couple of houses and you know how to do that, then people go, well, I don't want to just buy anymore. I want to do this or I want to do that. And the number one congruent thing that I've seen from talking, because that's the cool thing, I get to have about 700 sessions a year with very sophisticated investors with portfolios of between, you know, three and 30 properties. And from speaking to all these people, once they find a strategy that works, you know, you've got to evolve with the market and the market conditions and different strategies will work at different times. But once they find an approach that works for them, they just rinse and repeat it, but they rinse and repeat it for long enough that it can actually be an effective result where most investors, you know, you talk to people, they buy one house, it's probably a unit or a townhouse, and then they, you know, go and build something because that's a bit newer and more exciting. And then they're looking for a little splitter block or a subdivision. And, you know, it's it's just if if you don't consistently do one activity over time, then you don't you don't learn enough about that one activity to really refine it and improve it. And so you've got all these people running around looking for splitter blocks where they're only making eight to, you know, twelve percent net returns. Where had they have just bought a high quality property close to the city? done a renovation and added a bedroom or bathroom, they would have added 30% of value. And it's just it's just crazy how illogical people are and how much their need for change affects their long-term results. And I think, you know, that's where most people get it wrong. So many people come to me and they're like, I've just spoke to this guy and he said I need 10 to 20 properties. And I'm like, why? What's your goal? And they're like, 100K per year in passive income. And I'm like, four properties in the next three years, hold them for 15 years and you'll achieve your goal, you know, just simple, man. Just just do that. like, And then focus on having a sick life during that period of time and 
repaying what debt that you can and at the end of it all, renovate a couple and sell them to pay off the other two outright. Like it's it's that simple, but people want to make it so much harder than it really is. He's gone from selling out up to five months in advance to taking a maximum of 10 clients a month. But Everingham and his business have never been happier. Our buyer's agency, like everything in my life, is simple. So 12 months ago, um, I read this amazing article that was sent to me by, by Seth Gooden um, the legendary marketer in America and it said at the top of the article it was why not be bigger uh, why be bigger why not be better and at the time we were helping buy around about 15 properties per month um, and you know just probably on our way at that time to opening a Sydney and a Melbourne office and you know becoming one of the big big boys if you know what I mean in this space um, and then I read that article and literally that day I talked to my wife and I talked to my team and said, let's just focus on being the best and better. And since that day, we've never taken on more than 10 clients a month. And that's meant that we, in previous um, times, we've sold out anywhere between one and five months in advance. But it means that we choose the people that we work with that are culturally aligned. We choose the people that we work with because their strategies are aligned and because you know, I'd actually want to have a drink with those people and actually spend some time with them. Um, and it's completely changed our business and our model from, you know, the whole property industry is bigger, 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 more, 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 where we're just, let's get above average returns for our clients. Let's get a aim to get a one or 2% average annual capital gain better than the market average in the state we're buying. Let's get a one or 2% better rental return than the average in the state that we're buying. And let's try and do that consistently for the next 20 or 30 years. Um, and the other thing that we're obsessive about is customer service. So we're by far the most hands-on buyer's agency in the industry. And it's really about when you come to us working with me, my sister and my brother directly, there's no one else that you'll ever have a conversation with. We're super hands-on with what we do. And you know, I think that's some of the special sauce that is what Pumped On Property has now become, which is definitely by far one of um, the agencies in the industry that is trying to do the right thing by people and just, you know, telling it how it is. It's not, you know, us taking everybody's money just because they're prepared to give it to us. It's us helping the right people execute on a strategy and actually create the right strategy before you start, you know, wasting money and time looking at stuff and buying things. Thank you to Ben Everingham, our guest on this episode of Property Investory.